Somebody's always looking for something in this part of the West. This place is our West, and I wish they'd leave us alone. Four years ago, something terrible happened here. We did nothing about it. Nothing! What does he say? Who is this guy, anyway? Never heard of him, that's what he says. Kenyon's no John J. McCready. No listing, no record, no information, nothing. Bad day at Black Rock. Starring Lee Marvin. And Robert Ryan. Anne Francis. Dean Jagger. Walter Brennan. John Erickson. Ernest Borgnine. Spencer Tracy. That'd be better if you went out there and got done with it. What can he find out? liable to be the hardest ten dollars you ever earned in your life they're gonna kill you with no hard feelings now nobody like mccready can raise a pretty big stink the point is who'd miss a nobody like mccready if he just uh say disappeared caught on a road with no escape one man against the whole town stops at every turn Stopped from finding out the truth of what happened on that bad day at Black Rock. A day from which there is no escape. One day you will never forget. Bad day at Black Rock. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours? And if anybody listening listens to the Film and Water podcast, you already know that this is a very special episode. Not that they're not all special, but this one is special because it is the second of two parts of a Spencer Tracy appreciation show. The first part covered the movie Stanley and Livingston, the 1939 Spencer Tracy film, uh, where Rob Kelly and I discussed that movie at length and gave our opinions on it and that can be found on film and water podcast which uh rob is here with me again i should actually say that yeah, why, hi, don't you, why don't you tell them where they can find part one of this before we get into part two over on our network site which is firewaterpodcast.com and of course you can also find the show on itunes under its own title okay very good and and i certainly would like it if you'd seek that out uh but today you know now a week and a half later we are covering the 1955 Spencer Tracy movie, Bad Day at Black Rock. And this is a movie I had heard many things about over the years, and every time I heard something, it was fairly positive, and I kept saying to myself, I need to see that movie. And for whatever reason, I just never got around to it. And then sometime about two or three months ago, it was showing up on Turner Classic Movies, so I set my DVR for it. And one afternoon when I had a chance to watch it, as I was watching it, I said to myself, I think Rob Kelly would like this movie. Mm -hmm. So I messaged Rob and I said, uh, I'm watching Bad Day at Black Rock right now. Would you be interested in coming on Is It Yours to discuss it? And I, if I remember right, your response was, Spencer Tracy is one of my favorite actors of all time. I would love to come on if we can figure out a date to do it. Somehow from there, we decided to go with a crossover and we did... Uh, we did Stanley and Livingston already. Now uh, that was actually the secondary movie in our uh, in our discussions, but because it came out first, we decided to make it the first one we covered. Uh, 
So, as I said, I've seen this movie now twice, uh, but both within a two-month period from now. I, I had never seen this before this year. And I was curious, knowing that you're a big Spencer Tracy fan, when did you first see it? What was your uh, take on it at that time? This was a part of the basically, maybe not the first tier of Spencer Tracy movies that I started to rent when I worked at the video store, but it was second tier. Uh, first tier was probably Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, and it, It's a Mad Man. All the stuff he did was with um, Stanley Kramer. But this was right after that because this is I, – I, I mean, first of all, it's in color. And that was a big – when I was you know, getting into older films, I definitely leaned towards things that were in color in the, in the 50s because it was like – I love the Technicolor look. Like I love that look. I think it's beautiful. And this movie is in Cinescope, so it's super widescreen. It's really, it's really gorgeous to look at. And I love the the way he looks in the movie. He's got that dark suit and the hat. And then the cast. I mean, the cast of this movie is off the charts. I mean, he's Spencer Tracy's already got him in it. But then the supporting cast is Robert Ryan, Dean Jagger, Walter Brennan, Ernest Borgnine, and Lee Marvin. I mean, and, and Jiminy Christmas. And Anne Francis is the, but I mean, in terms of tough guys, what a group of people. This oh, is yeah. an amazing movie. And it is one of the social message movies. And that, I really like those movies. I like Spencer Tracy as kind of the, 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 the pillar. I, I said this in the, in the Stanley Livingston episode, Stanley, I um, mean, um, Spencer Tracy as the pillar of moral rectitude, the guy that comes in, shows everybody what's what, how to behave. I love that kind of movie. I'm just a sucker for it. And not only does he get to do it by example, he also gets to kick ass in this movie, which is how many times does Spencer Tracy get to do that? I I just think this is a terrific movie. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I loved when he kicked ass in this movie. Now, one of the things about this movie is apparently – it was done to appease Tracy because he was on the fence about whether or not he wanted to do this movie. Right. And that's why they made his character a one-armed man because they said no actor can, can resist hand, playing a, a character with a handicap. Right. Right. So, sure. so, so he's a one-armed man. He apparently lost his arm in the, in world war two. Uh, the movie, I guess is supposed to be contemporary. It's, we came out in 1955. I think it's supposed to be somewhere around that time when this movie takes place. Um, so and and just just to give a quick quick uh, synopsis, Spencer Tracy arrives at this town, and you know Rob mentioned the cinemascope version of it that it's very very widescreen. This town is exactly that; it's like five buildings in the middle of nowhere, and they show you shots, long shots that really show you how desolate it is. And he shows up in the town, and he couldn't be less welcomed by the community there. And his his purpose is to give uh was it was it a medal that he wanted uh, to give yeah because he oh. his the guy's son saved him in world war ii yes and uh and a lot of this doesn't come out until late in the movie uh but it, it, it was a a man of of japanese heritage and long story short and spoilers uh he was he was killed by these people uh, particularly robert ryan who's the leader of the group and they're all trying to keep that from getting out. And there's a scene in it where, uh, is it is it Ernest Borgnine that he fights? Yeah, Ernest yeah. Borgnine. And Borgnine is, you know, is, is basically, he's your prototypical bully in this movie. 
he he comes up behind Tracy in his car when he when he's driving and starts ramming him off the road and he's laughing and cackling while he's doing it. But there's a scene in there where, where they do have a physical confrontation. And with one arm, Spencer Tracy, and anybody who knows what Spencer Tracy looks like as compared to 1950s Ernest Borgnine, would not give Tracy any chance in a fight. And with his one arm, he just karate chops Borgnine to the ground. And it's just a great scene, and it's kind of believable in the way they show it. Yeah, I mean, they apparently Tracy, when he first got that scene, was like, oh, come on, I could never do that. And then they had like an expert, like a judo expert, show him that if you hit the guy, you hit the guy in this part of the neck and you did it with the right force, you could actually do it. You could do that kind of damage to a guy. And then it's a great scene because you're so – because for the whole movie, they're treating Tracy like garbage. I mean, he shows up at the train station and he tries to get a, uh, a, a room – and the guy, the hotel clerk is like, there's no room here. And Spencer Tracy's like, McCready, his name is the character, McCready. And he's like, you know, I see you've got a lot of vacancies. He's like, nope, no vacancies. And you just know that they don't want him there. And he's he's so reserved. He keeps kind of putting up with being abused by everybody in the town. And then when finally Ernest Borgnine just, you know, goes too far and attacks him. And then you just, you get to see Spencer Tracy just uncoil and just do that crutch. And he sends him... Um, uh, flying through the door, he smashes the door open, and he just does it with such efficiency, just a couple of chop, 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 and just the way he, ki- I mean, it's like every nerd, and you know, raise his hand over here, every nerd <laughs> that got, that got beat up in school, like you would want that, you know what I mean? You would want to, because it's almost like a superpower. Like he can he can dispense uh, a beatdown on somebody twice his size with such little, seemingly such little effort. He barely even moves from his standing position. It doesn't look like he has to get there and like roust about with Ernest Borgnine. He can just do a couple chops and then and and then what's great is everybody else is watching this happen. You know, they're like, oh my god, he just beat this guy up. I just it's such the whole movie is great, but that scene is really the thing that uh, it really gets your your blood pumping because it's, it's just so awesome to see old Spencer Tracy uh, dispense a beatdown to some old racist. Now I'm curious just if this would ring a bell with you at all because this the scene actually clearly was redone. At least to my uh, mind, in the movie The Presidio, did you ever see that movie? I have not. I know I'm it's aware of it. Sean Connery, Mark, Mark Harmon, and, and Mark Sean, Harmon, Sean Connery, yeah. and Sean Connery is the older statesman in it. He's a, uh, I think he's a retired military, but he may be active at the time. Uh, but he's certainly an older, you know, senior uh, man. He's the father of Mark Harmon's love interest in the movie. And there's a scene in there where I, I believe, and it's been a long time since I saw the movie, so if I'm slightly off in the description, please forgive me. But they're in a bar, and some you know real, real big guy starts a fight with Sean Connery. And Sean Connery says, you know, I'm going to beat you up, and I'm just going to use my thumb. <laughs> and, and he basically just keeps poking and jabbing at the guy with his thumb until the guy's unconscious. <laughs> And it's to me, it's 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 comical, but it's clearly a remake of this scene in its own way. Interesting. Well, that's what you get for messing with James Bond. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, really. Or or uh, Henry Jones. Or Henry Jones, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, come on, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's I I it's it's a atypical scene for a movie like this because again, Spencer Tracy was a kind of you know at this point you know a legendary actor, and he didn't you didn't put him in fight scenes. Uh, he's not a fight scene kind of guy. Clark Gable, yeah, you know, but mm-hmm. not but not uh, Spencer Tracy. You know, you didn't see a lot of that. Same thing with like Jimmy Stewart or Henry Fonda. Those guys didn't get into fights necessarily. So seeing him do it, and I love 
the way he shot. Almost, almost all the shots of Spencer Tracy are from long shots or mid-range shots. There's very few close-ups. And so he kind of cuts this very interesting figure because he always has like the black hat and the black suit. He's he is magnetic in the frame because this is a very colorful movie. There's lots of, you know, um, like orange skies and these. You know, there's a, it's nothing but desert all the time. And so it's a lot of warm colors. And then he's almost like this black shape that's always in the you know wandering around in the frame. And so it just it's visually there's a lot there. It's like I said, a really handsome looking movie directed by um. John Sturgis, who did The Great Escape and uh, The Magnificent Seven, it's like you know one of the great directors. Yes, absolutely, and and it's and it is it is one of the just prettier movies. Uh, you just I just look at it and it's it's just so big looking, and I think that's a product of the cinemascope. Yeah, and he also oh aside from the karate chop thing, I don't mean to jump ahead, but ahead. the other completely boss scene is when he makes like the Molotov cocktail. And he throws it at the guy at the end. And mm-hmm. it's all done in one shot. So it's a real stunt where you see this flaming bottle hit a big rock formation, explode into flames, and set a guy on fire. And they really did it. Like, that's clearly a stuntman being set on fire. And it's all one shot. And you're like, man, that that, that just looks kick-ass. Like, that must have been so tough to do to, like, hit the thing. And the flames got engulfed the guy. And you're like, oh, my. He's like, it's, again, you know that they did it nowadays. It would all be CG. And it would all be sort of phony. But, I mean, you know that there was a real guy out in the desert that they had to coat in flames and, and set on fire for that stunt. It's Again, I love how Spencer Tracy can defend himself in this movie. Yes, and and it's yeah, it's you know this whole movie is kind of like a slow burn, because you don't know what they're keeping from him right. as it's going on, and you don't know why they're so aggressive towards him, and you could see some of the characters are warming up as it goes along. Certainly, Walter Brennan to some extent, Dean Jagger, uh, never Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> but uh, you know they, they're starting to say, hey, you know maybe maybe we're not right for listening to Robert Ryan, and. It's not only a matter of being right, they're afraid of him. And right. he clearly won't think twice about you know, killing them uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. He ultimately kills Anne Francis, who you know, trusts him towards the end. And that's, that's, you know, that's how our trust is rewarded. Uh, so there's, there's a lot going on with that. And I think this was a really brave movie. You, know, you mentioned the social message. Uh, you know, growing up, and I assume your, your experience was similar, we were always taught about how, you know, the uh, the Nazi concentration camps were this, this horrible, horrible place where people were treated, you know, inhumanly and killed, which is reality. But we were also taught, yeah, we had these internment camps there, here, but, you know, they weren't so bad. Mm-hmm. People were treated okay. And that's, you know, to me, that goes to the, to the argument of, you know, history is written by the winners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't have any reason to believe things were as bad as they were in the concentration camps only because I don't think people were being marched into gas chambers here, no. but clearly they were, they were being dehumanized and not treated well. And I do think there were people who were dying of illnesses in these camps who did not get the proper treatment and care. I think that's kind of a fact. So, and, and just listening to uh, George Takei, uh, apparently his father like lost his business because of this and, Sure. Was, was then destitute afterwards because he was kept in this uh, internment camp for longer than than the, the business could survive. So, yeah. so, so we were not the good guys that we want to present ourselves as being. And and again, I think you know that's always 
understandable. There's always shades of gray. There's always things. No, nobody, you know, everybody wears gray hats. No, nobody's always the total good guy. Nobody's always the total bad guy, except for Hitler, who's always the total bad guy. Yeah. Uh, but to show this in a movie in 1955, only 10 years removed from World War II, I think is a pretty brave thing. And they don't show the internment camp, but they do let you know, and there is the message in here of how bad that was. And yes. they show the prejudice against this man, and which eventually cost him his life. We never meet the character. But we do know that he was wrongly killed. He was, if I remember right, his house was burned down with him in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty grim. Pretty grim. So, you know, to to show the Americans as the bad guys in 1955, I think was, you know, fairly atypical and almost unheard of. Yeah, I read that the the head of the studio didn't really want to make this movie. Uh, and that, I mean, that that's it was interesting because, you know, Hollywood was making a lot of message, quote unquote, message pictures in the 40s, like Gentleman's Agreement or, you know, and, and, and apparently they were getting a little concerned about, you know, getting some political trouble. And that's kind of how they moved into film noir was kind of it was easier to tell those stories under the guise of just these sort of gritty thrillers. But here this is this is a social message laid right out. And you're right about the, the whole thing with the internment camps. I mean, I know that I've become sort of, you know, it's become a running joke on film and water or fire and water that like I'm like a mega fan of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and I do my horrible impression of him and stuff. But I also have to, you know, I have to reconcile, you know, under his presidency, he locked innocent people, innocent Americans up in camps. And it's like the single greatest, you know, human rights violation this country probably ever committed on its citizens. And that was the same guy. That's the same guy that I admire. It's the same guy that formed the all-star squadron for Pete's sakes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but it's true. And I liked it. I actually think it's a really effective uh, choice that we never meet. Uh, the guy, I mean, of course, the guy that Spencer Tracy's looking to, to, to find that he's dead. And we never meet the son either. And all we have is Tracy's word. I, I, I think they it makes them kind of haunt the movie a little that they're not there. Um, the sacrifices they made for their country uh, are, you know, cannot be, uh, you know, fairly estimated. And they're gone. I, I like that it's just kind of the people here to kind of clean up and. I do love I really John Sturgis I think does a great job of presenting how sort of like what a sand pit this town is because it's so small that it's like if you're unlucky enough to be born here you're never going to leave. They make comments about how the train only stops in the town like once every 6 months or something like that. Right, right. And it's like you are if you're stuck here you have basically got to fall in line with the way Robert Ryan wants to run things or you're just doomed. You know, and I that to me that's like a whole other genre movie, the nightmare town, you know, where everything in the town is screwed up. Everybody is evil or this or that, because that's just how you have to go along to get along. And then I think the, the, they get along, they get that. They, I think they convey that very effectively. And you can see why they immediately don't trust Spencer Tracy. They don't even know anything about him, but just by the fact that he's stopping voluntarily, they're immediately not trustful, trustworthy. He's not the, they don't trust him. And the whole scene where he's trying to check in at the hotel, I talk about, we see Lee Marvin and Walter Brennan just sitting on the couch, just watching him warily, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, I, I, it's a very sort of paranoid movie. And I, that's one of the things I like about it. Now, Walter Brennan, I just want to talk a little bit about the supporting cast here a little bit. Well, and I'll start with Walter Brennan. To me, Walter Brennan is often comic relief in movies. I think sure. of him in, uh, 
Rio Bravo. A Rio Bravo, yeah, yeah. I think of him in that where he where he you know played a, a good character, but he was also comic relief. And now we're having two movies in a row that we're talking about that he's uh, you know got a fairly significant supporting role, and there's no comedy to it whatsoever. Uh, you know, in the, in this one, he he is essentially the bridge to for McGreedy to get where he needs to get the information he needs and be able to solve you know, the, the problems he has and also get the means he needs to get the problem solved. Mm. So he, he is the first one to actually turn on Robert Ryan in the movie. And he does so subtly though. He does so in a way where if McGreedy isn't successful, he, you know, he has, uh, uh, the ability to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I had nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. It's got plausible de- deniability as, as he works it out. But he plays, you know, a fairly complex character in this. He's the doctor, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we go from him. Well, let me let me stop on him for a minute and just get your thoughts as to what you thought of him and his, his performance in this movie. Yeah, I know. I like him here. I know I don't find him like that funny in as the supporting a comedic supporting act i mean he was famous for that um so i mean he was on tv as well i i I find him i liked him better here than i did in stanley livingston just because you know i he's just i think he fits i mean this movie would not work with a a comedy relief character you don't want to see that this movie's deadly serious so you can't have that but i like seeing somebody that's normally meant to be funny in a serious part I think that's a nice change of pace. I mean, he did other movies. He was in Sergeant York and a lot of other great movies. But uh, no, I, yeah, I like him here. I, I like. I, I, I think he he fits in well, and he's uh, you know, it's you need to have Spencer Tracy have somebody that's not totally against him, and eventually Anne Francis is is that character too. But um, I like that you you feel like he's on Tracy's side a little bit, but also he's clearly part of this gang too, you know? Mm -hmm. So you never know where his loyalties lie. And he's always sitting on that couch. He's always in that same position, he's got that, uh, that hat on and his arms out. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's, you never know where you stand with him throughout the whole movie. From him, I'll I'll jump over to Ernest Borgnine, who is only, I think a couple of months earlier than his Academy Award winning performance in Marty. Right. And he already had, you know, a fairly significant career at this point. You know, the, he, he was not a newcomer to the movies by any stretch. Uh, and he, he takes on, you know, a real supporting role here. Uh, and is absolutely believable as a cackling maniac. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is frightening in this role in, in his own way. Oh, when he tries to run Spencer Tracy off the road, he's not even hiding it. I mean, he's not. I mean, he's so sure that he can do whatever he wants in this town that he's not even pretending to hide what he's doing. He's literally trying to just commit murder, and he's totally over. He's fine with it. Yeah, it's like whatever. Yeah. I can do what I want in this town. Well, right, right up until Spencer Tracy just hands him his lunch. Yep. Uh, Lee Morvin is a little bit. His his role is a little bit smaller in this. He he isn't quite as significant to the movie, I didn't think. Uh, it didn't call for necessarily any particular any particular actor in this role. I, I, I thought it, his part was kind of negligible. He was still on the rise at this point. I mean, he had done a bunch of movies, but you look at him, he's like eighth build uh, here. So he was still kind of, uh, you know... Uh, a jobber, you know, I mean, he's kind of just playing the roles and stuff like that. I mean, eventually, not too long after this, he would become Lee Marvin in all caps. But here he's still kind of like more one of the gang 
kind of thing. If you look at some of the other movies he did before this, it's like Pete Kelly's Blues, not as a stranger, Violent Saturday. I mean, it's like the, the raid. I mean, he was in the Kane Mutiny, but he had a small part there. So he was not yet, you know, he, he was still ready to become who he eventually became not too long after this. But they got him on the upswing. Yeah. Now, Dean Jagger, I thought uh, was perfect casting as the absolutely ineffective sheriff who's there, you know, more as a figurehead uh, to do Robert Ryan's bidding. Mm-hmm. And eventually finds the inner strength to do the right thing at the end. I don't know if he finds the inner strength so much as he has no choice by then. Mm-hmm. But but he, he eventually, you know, sides with Spencer Tracy at the end and takes care of business the right way. But I thought he was really well cast. Yeah, I love Dean Jagger just from White Christmas, one of my all-time favorite movies, and he's the general in that movie. Uh, yeah, he's he's good here. I'm glad he's not so villainous. He's really just, as you say, he's just more ineffective and weak. But again, you you get it that, you know, what are you going to do if you live in this town? Unless you have the money to leave, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're going to, you're going to, re- I mean, clearly uh, they'll murder you here if you don't fall in line. So, and, and Dean Jagger's kind of an old man at this point. Robert Ryan is the younger than he is. So, you know, yeah, it's you, you buy into why Dean Jagger is the way he is. It still made me sad though. Cause again, I like Dean Jagger so much that I like seeing him as kind of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here he's, you know, he's kind of just going along for, with some bad stuff. But I, I, I thought the, uh, the part played by Anne Francis was pretty cool because I thought it had some dimension to it. Uh, you know, the way she, she kind of goes, she follows Robert Ryan's lead, but she kind of goes her own way at the same time. You know, like she'll, she'll rent Spencer Tracy, the car mm-hmm. over objection saying, well, where's he going to go anyway? You know, she, she doesn't, she doesn't just go along with what, what she's told to do. And eventually, uh, but eventually it cost her her life because she just thinks that Ryan won't do what he does and he shoots her in the back. Mm-hmm. Which shows you, just to take it from there, how villainous of a character he is. Because to me, 1950s Hollywood, you want somebody to be the bad guy, have him shoot somebody in the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, I like, I, you know what, something we mentioned in the... Um Stanley Livingston episode that I didn't enjoy about that movie was the kind of shoehorned romance. And I like that there's none of that here. I mean, first of all, it would have been creepy for Spencer Tracy to be romancing Anne Francis because he was like double her age. But I'm glad they didn't feel the need to do that. McCready has basically one mission in this movie, and that's it. There's no side distraction. He doesn't meet, you know, a school marm or something that he falls in love with. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's none of that. Like, she's his friend and his helper in this movie, not a romantic interest, and I appreciate it. I'm glad that they didn't try and fit that into the movie. Because this is a tight little movie, too. I mean, for, for as many characters as it gets into it, as many situations, this is like a 90-minute movie. It gets in 81. and out. 81. 81! 81! Imagine I I don't know how you feel. I'm, we're getting off topic a little, and I apologize. I don't know how you feel about these things, Paul. But like, I if I went to a movie right nowadays, even though movies are like sometimes you know nine, ten dollars, eleven dollars a ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, if I saw a movie that I thought was really good, really excellent, but it was 82 minutes, I wouldn't feel like I was cheated. You know, I'd be like, if if that movie really was perfect at the length. I wouldn't feel like, oh, man, I wanted that movie to be two hours. I've seen so many two-hour movies that really should have been 90 minutes. But I feel like they're afraid of, of you know, for how much money movies cost now. They want the idea to 
like that you're getting your money's worth. And mm-hmm. so all these movies are like 128 minutes, 132 minutes. I'm perfect. I love that this movie is as short as it is. I and mean, it's, it's, it's like a short story, you know, like a little novella. I think that's terrific. I, th- I think there's a reality to what you're saying. And, and I don't think it's so far afield because we're talking about this movie. But uh, I do think nowadays, while you and I and many people can see past the running time and look to the quality and what you walk away with at the end, uh, I do think there's a lot of the viewing public that would say, oh, I'm not going to go to the movies and I'm back home in an hour and a half. Right. <laughs> you know, back in, in 19, the 1950s, you could get away with this more because they'd have a cartoon beforehand and, you know, maybe they'd have a little, some sort of little other short or something. And, and by the time you were done, you, you were there for two hours anyway. Mm-hmm. And now all you're going to do is get a, a bunch of really stale commercials and more coming attractions than you want to see. Yes. And the movie. And I'm, yeah. I'm very spoiler-averse, and yeah, I know we are going off field here, but I'm very spoiler-averse. So my thought process is, if I know I'm going to see a movie, I don't want to see I don't want to see any more than I have to. Mm-hmm. So if I know for a fact I'm going to something, uh, other than maybe the very first trailer, which usually doesn't give you too much, I'll avoid even seeing trailers for movies, because I don't want them to spoil things for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, going to the movies and seeing five trailers or six trailers or ten trailers or whatever they show before the movie starts is often against what I want to deal with. Just show me a quality movie and, and don't waste my time with filler. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I love trailers, but yeah, I get a little like right around trailer number five. I'm like, OK, all right, like, let's get to the thing. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, if they if they released Bad Day at Black Rock and they had like, oh, we found a half hour of deleted scenes, I'd watch them. But I don't think that they would inherently make this movie better. I, I well, that's one of the virtues of it is that it is so efficient. I mean, it's based on a short story um, called Bad Time in Honda, and so you know they obviously didn't feel the need to pad it out uh, too terribly much. Not that necessarily expanding it makes it padded because like, you know, the thing is based on a novella and nobody would accuse the thing of being padded. But, uh, but I, I think it's gutsy to make a movie with these many big stars, Spencer Tracy, and it's 81 minutes. I mean, I would, I, I, I have no idea, but I bet you this is one of the shortest movies he's ever been in. Probably. Well, it says the, the original story, by the way, was appeared in the American magazine. In January of 1947. So when you say novella, I don't even. Think, I think that makes it sound longer than it is. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. If it was if it was in a magazine, it's you know literally a short story. Yeah. Um, and, and with full color illustrations, according to Wikipedia. So. Oh. It's, so it was short enough that they still had room for illustrations in it, and it came out in 1947, which makes it to me that much more of a bold story when we talk mm-hmm. about you know, the, the content in it, because now you're really close in time to world war two. We still had guys overseas, and, yes. you know, literally and in service for the war at that point. There were, there were people who had barely gotten out of those internment mm-hmm. camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard of the American magazine either, but you're right. That's a pretty gutsy thing to publish. And it's a pretty quick, you know, from 47 to 55. That's, I know movies were produced on a much shorter schedule back then. Nowadays, it's like, you know, five years developing time or whatever, but still that's, that's pretty quick. I mean, obviously it was, you know, relevant to people's, on people's minds at the time. Mm-hmm. And then apparently, you know, like I said, they did have some issue with, uh, with Spencer Tracy that they really wanted him to be in the movie. 
but that he had some issues. And as you, as you mentioned, I don't know if you mentioned in this show or in, in part one, uh, you know, he had, he had a lot of issues with alcohol at this time. Uh, and apparently the story is he was booking at being in it. So they started a rumor that Alan Ladd was going to take the part. <laughs> and for whatever reason, there were, I guess there was some sort of a rivalry there because that was the thing that spurred Spencer Tracy on to do it. And then it turned out Alan Ladd, you know, was never even sent a copy of the script. <laughs> oh, Spence. <laughs> Uh, you you got to wonder a little bit of what he was like in real life because he, he played, you know, the uh, – he, he, I, I would – I tend to go to the word avuncular, but he, he was more like the stern dad than he was an uncle. Uh, but I don't know that that's what he was like in real life. I think he may have been a little bit more wild. Yeah, he he was he was definitely a troubled guy. I mean, he, he absolutely was, you know. I mean, he drank a lot and he, he – you know, his life ended sooner than it had to because of that. And he couldn't control his excesses and he had a lot of affairs and he did a lot of, you know, for all the romanticism of him and uh, Catherine Hepburn's relationship. I mean, he cheated on Catherine Hepburn. He was a guy that had a real tough time controlling his appetites at times. And, you know, I've read books about him and some of his behavior on sets by today's standards would be completely unacceptable. I mean, totally, he would be fired and not allowed back in on movies but it was a different time then and people did respect him and people did continue to work with him over and over again i think he was the kind of guy that if you could get him under control i hope i don't make him sound like a monster or anything but if he was somebody that you could you could sort of keep him focused then it was great because he, again he worked with people over and over again and in fact like he the movie he did just before this is called broken lance and he co-stars with robert wagner and it's directed by edward dimitrick and then the movie he did after this is called The Mountain, which co-stars Robert Wagner and was directed by Edward Dimitrick. So he worked with the same people before and after this movie. And if he was that difficult to work with, I think he probably wouldn't have had that much repeat people that were, you know, working with him in multiple films. Well, my, my impression and you know, take it for what it's worth, but my impression of him is that he was hard drinking, hard living but that he wasn't a distasteful person. So you could get along with him fine, even if you didn't agree with his behavior. Mm -hmm. Whereas some people are like that and they are just impossible to get along with. Yes. Yeah. I don't think he was that. I think he, you know, I think people liked him. They genuinely liked him. He just was a man, as you say, with too many excesses. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, I, I think he got away with a lot because he was such so good an actor. You know, I mean, and you can argue whether that's acceptable or not, whether that's the way it should be. But that that is what happened. I mean, they he was never like that huge a box office star. You know, he was he was more known as the actor's actor mm -hmm. uh, that he brought class and a lot of prestige. But he was not, uh, you know, he was not like uh, Marilyn Monroe, you know, or like Elvis, somebody who guaranteed profit. He did a lot of movies that didn't particularly do all that well. A lot of the, a lot of his movies of his that I I really like were not hits. Inherit the Wind was not a particularly big hit. It's a Man Man Man, man World was successful, but it wasn't like you know Star Wars or anything. But uh, it's because he made kind of heavy movies in a lot of times. And he did some frothy comedies as well. Father of the Bride, he did that. And, but I mean, you know, and this movie was successful, but again, it wasn't some 
mega blockbuster because it's it's uh, you know it, it's it, it's taking a hard issue and it's uh, unpleasant in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm I'm watching. I had the movie going on in the background as we're talking here, and like just the scene with between Robert Ryan and Dean Jagger, where he's kind of like browbeating Dean Jagger into doing what he wants. It's 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 not fun to watch because you know this is there's a lot of bad evil stuff going on here yeah well it's it's the it's the absolute brightest and most colorful movie that in my mind is film noir ever mm-hmm. you know it yeah. definitely does not have the look of film noir and it doesn't really have the crime story of a film noir movie but it still has the feel of it with the mystery that's going on and and with the you know the just the, the general attitudes of these people so I, I don't know if it would be classified that way by anybody but me, but that's what it feels like to me. Oh yeah, I, I yeah I would. It's like I said, it, it, the people the, in the IMDb they call it like a western noir almost, and it does have a little bit of that because it's the the, it, the the shots the way a lot of them are composed are very westerny shots. There's this scene where all of them are in the town, like on the railroad tracks, almost like the town square, because this town is so small, they barely have a square. But, I mean, it looks like a classic Western. Everybody's in their cowboy hats, and they've all got their hands in their hips, like they're ready to square off with one another. Uh, and we constantly are seeing the mountains in the background and the, 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 you know, the big vistas. I mean, again, this was shot in CinemaScope. They were trying to take advantage of the widescreen format to keep people get people out of their homes and stop watching television and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, but in terms of the themes, it does have a lot of film noir themes. It's a bunch of bad people trying to cover up a crime and one guy trying to, you know, uncover it and do the right thing. You know, it's, it's a lot of that similar elements. Yeah, the funny thing is when, when you look to the motivations of the characters, I don't even think he went there with the intention of uncovering the crime. All his intention right. was, was to give this medal to the father of the man who saved his life. Right. And then they really embroiled him in it. If they had, if they had just been, I was going to say more welcoming, but I think that's probably not the right way. If they had been slightly less uh, offended by him, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he he might have come and gone peacefully and said, you know, found out that the guy, you know, oh, he passed away, you know, there was a fire and he died, and and he probably would have just left the town and said, oh, that's that sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but because they were just so openly antagonistic to him, you know, and clearly underestimated his capabilities. I, I think, you know, that set him off in the direction that it does in the movie. And again, that kind of, to me, that kind of creates a depth in the movie uh, that it's not, it doesn't feel so fabricated that way. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't come, you know, I'm here to solve a crime. You know, there was none of that. And and he's so mysterious in the movie. And that's that's one of the great things about this movie is just he feels mysterious throughout it. Robert Ryan is mysterious throughout it. You don't know what the motivations of these characters are. And even knowing the motivations, watching it a second time, it still feels that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it. it. It remains very fresh. I've seen this movie probably half a dozen times at this point, and uh, I don't get tired of watching it. I think it's just. Again, all the performances are really good across the board, and, and and I just enjoy watching all these name actors all interact. I mean, having Robert Robert Ryan and Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine in the one movie together is, you know, I mean, I mean, first of all, it's it's a early run for the Dirty Dozen. Uh, it's like the Dirty Three you've got going here, but I mean, it's like all these tough guys, and I would love to know what it was like to hang out on the set with these guys. Like that must be. That must have been fun if you could keep up with them, probably drinking wise. But it's like they probably had some amazing stories because 
Um, some of this stuff must have been shot on location. I mean, a lot of it's probably on the back lot, but some of it had to be them out somewhere. And they probably, you know, have all these guys just hanging out drinking and, and uh, you know, probably getting in fights and crazy stuff. It's like yeah. it's probably some great stories. I would think so. I mean, with, with, with this crew, I don't see how you could avoid it. Uh, that, that's probably, you know, you probably needed somebody uh, to be kind of the wrangler just to kind of keep them all in check so that when, when the time came to film a scene, they were available. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Sturges went on to do Great Escape and Magnificence of an after this. But he, uh, he clearly got a handle on learning how to handle, you know, uh, corral large casts. Uh, I'm going to imagine the Magnificent Seven, those guys are probably fairly hard to deal with. And Great Escape, too. He's Steve McQueen for Pete's sakes and James Gardner and Donald Pleasance. It's, you, have to, you have to have a certain, you know, uh, kind of uh, heft to be able to corral all these people. I know it's a job and they're, they're, they're working, but still a lot of these guys are pretty wild dudes. And you probably have to have a real force of will to be able to keep these people all in focus. From what I've ever heard about making a movie, it's almost impossible. Movies get made, but it's almost impossible just to make a movie and make it like decent. And to have, you know, a bunch of guys that are known for maybe being a little on the tough side. Like I imagine it's a a tough gig. I'm thinking about like professional athletes, a lot of times, like uh, if you're hiring a manager or a coach, uh, you, ne- you almost need to have a former player because if you have someone who just has the intellect to do it but hasn't got the experience of having been there themselves, the players won't respect them. Mm. So I'm thinking with with a crew like this, you probably needed to have a director who could, you know, who could stand up to them, who could, uh, you know, who could sit there and. and pound the, the uh, alcohol the same way they can and, and just, you know, gain their respect in that way. Otherwise, you, you probably lose, you know, lose their respect and therefore and then they're not going to listen to you. Yeah, I, he, he, uh, Sturgis went on to work with uh, Spencer Tracy again after this, too. They would do uh, The Old Man in the Sea in 1958, which I think uh, I think uh, Spencer Tracy even got nominated for. Yeah, he got, he got nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role. So, uh, clearly, they got along pretty well, you know. I mean, able yeah. to work with them again. The guy that's, a, that's, a, that's a completely different movie because that's like basically just Spencer Tracy. Yeah, like it, it's the one. He's a one guy in the whole movie. The the the, the the director I'm thinking of who probably you know probably fits the role I'm talking about best is probably John Huston. Oh sure. That, that he you know he he could eventually they might say to him, John, come on, we got to go film this next scene. Yeah, he was probably the one that was like, hey, let's yeah. Let's go out and party and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, these guys, these old guys, you know, it's kind of funny that John Sturgis is not as well remembered considering how many great movies he's directed. I mean, you look at his filmography and it's a lot of really great, I guess, because he doesn't have a noticeable style. Exactly. I think the way John Huston does, or maybe some of these other guys, but you know, he just, he made a lot of really great movies. He and he worked on big canvases, you know, with lots of actors, lots of people running around. So I don't know. I, the, I was I was looking at some of the Wikipedia stuff on this, and they talk about that there was an episode of the A Team called "Bad Day at Black Rock," which even has a similar setting. So, uh, at least by the 1980s, people still remember this movie, even though it was 30 years old. Well, let's. I I don't know if I mentioned in this show or the previous one because they're starting to blend a little bit. My initial my initial contact with this movie, or my my first uh, first time I became aware of it, was sometime in the 1980s. Uh, when Cisco and Ebert were doing a bit at the end of their show, and they would say, "Here's a movie you may not have seen that's available on you know home video that we're recommending to you," and at the end of each 
episode, each show they would pick one movie, and I remember them pointing out this one. And from the clip they showed, I said back then, yeah, I really need to see this movie. And it took me about 30 years to finally sit down to watch <laughs> it. But it did make enough of impre- an impression that even you know now I still remember that it was recommended on that show, and that was the first time I ever heard of it, and I did want to see it then, just for whatever reason, never got around to it. That's but I'm, I'm glad that's, I finally did. That's a shame that that doesn't really exist on the web, but it doesn't really exist in a mass entertainment scale like that anymore. You know, we're like two film critics that you watch every week to hear what they're saying about new movies would take the time to say, hey, go back and find this old thing. You know, that's 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 a shame. One of the again, we're getting way off topic, but one of the things I like to do on any streaming service that I happen to, to peruse, I will go and try and find the oldest movie I can and then look and see what else they recommend because that's the way I find my way to some of this older stuff. I think a lot of these streaming services assume nobody wants, wants to watch their older movies, so they don't bother highlighting it. You know, they'll, they'll tell me, oh, we have Iron Man 2, and I'm like, I don't care about Iron Man 2. I want to know what else you have. So I'll go find something old, and it'll say, maybe you will also like this. And it'll show me even older movies. And those I almost go out of my way to add to my watch list. Mm-hmm. Because I want, I wish more of this kind of stuff was available. I think Big Day Black Rock, we, I asked you about this um, on the um, Stanley Livingstone episode. Like whether you think a kid would want to watch this movie. I think this is kind of heavy for kids. But I think the colors are beautiful. I think visually it's great. And talk about attention spans. I mean, this is like the length of an episode of Game of Thrones. And you get a whole movie. Yeah. So I actually think a younger a, a kid who is interested in social message stuff, or maybe wants to learn about what it was like in the past, and the action scene, the jeep chase with Ernest Borgnine and Spencer Tracy is well done. I think this would be an ideal movie for kids, for for like you know like an eleven or twelve year old. Well, we we yeah, that's what I was just going to get to is when we talked about it with Stanley Livingstone, we we mentioned you know how do you define kid, uh, and we you know we talked about like say a, a nine or ten year old in school being shown that movie because you know the reality is either of these movies is probably not going to be sought out by a young kid no so you you know you have to get them as a captive audience and then the question is if you do that will it eventually captivate them i think for this particular movie you probably need a kid more around the 15 or 16 year old okay level i think i think a 10 year, 10 or 11 year old might be bored by it maybe maybe but I think once you get to you know once you get to the point where you could appreciate a little bit more of a nuance in the movie, I think then, you know, then this might grab a hold of you. You know, they'll start to see the, the mystery part of it and they'll get interested in it, and then you know the acting and everything will take over. But I think I think you need a kid who's going to be old enough to kind of appreciate that. Yeah, that's my I'd take that. on it. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I certainly wasn't interested in movies like this when I was that age, but. Once and we, yeah, when I got to be in like my mid-teens, then I started being like, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot of cool, cool stuff here. I, I think maybe if you showed a, if if you could get a kid that could get through it to the point where you get to the karate chop scene, then I think you've got them, because I just think you're not expecting, you know, this old man to be able to kick ass like the way he does. Yes, I, I agree with that too. I think I think it, that's the point where you could say, okay, I'm going to get up and go to the bathroom, and you don't have to worry about them turning it off. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, well, I guess we've, unless, unless you have any other points you want to make on this one. Um, uh, I just want to say, I just think it's, it's one of, I, I think Spencer Tracy was in, um, 
a lot of the movies he was doing around this time or in the 50s are sort of forgettable or they're, they're not around much. Like I mentioned, The Mountain or Broken Lance. Those movies are, you can get them, but they're not particularly famous. But this, I look at this as like one of his late inning real winners. You know, I lumped this in with Inherit the Wind and Judgment in Nuremberg, even though it was not made from, uh, made from with different people. I, this is when, Spencer Tracy was just one of those guys that was always going to come and deliver a lesson like in, and in a good way, you know, in a good moral lesson. And I think I, I consider this one of his best films. Is it one of his best performances? I don't know necessarily. I think he's great in it. It was always great. Um, but I think this is one of his, one of his best movies just because it's, it's sharp and crisp. I think it has a lot of great things to say and a bunch of other great actors that he gets to bounce off of. So uh, I'm really glad we got to talk about it because I really like it. I, I agree with you. But we both like it. But where does it fall oh, on the scale? <laughs> Do I have to give the ratings again? No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm good. I'm I flat out give this a Jaws. Do I say it is a, like, is it as classic a film as Jaws is? No, but it's in that range. I, I really don't have any flaws with this movie i don't there's nothing in it where i'm like eh, that scene ain't that great or whatever first of all again in 81 minutes you can't even you know you don't even get to anything where you know where's that it's welcome but uh, no i think it's i think it's great across the board so i would give it a jaws yeah i i think the the reality of it is you know saying a movie is the jaws is jaws doesn't necessarily mean that if i were ranking movies it has to rank as high or higher than jaws right I think the, the true definition of it is, can you say this is a great movie? I would say, I would absolutely say it is. And, and I, I got to tell you, I have to think. It doesn't just come out, you know, there's certain movies where I could say, oh, that, that's absolutely a great movie, no question about it. I have to think a little bit on it. But when I think about it, I start coming back with, there really are no flaws to speak of. There are a lot of things about it that are superlative. And I don't want to be... Uh, you know, I don't want to be t- losing myself into hyperbole too often with these movies. I, I try to avoid that. Sure. So I try to be a little bit more critical sometimes. But I think the word great can be associated with this. And therefore, if it can be considered great, it could be considered Jaws. Maybe it's a little on the lower end of Jaws, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, so I, I, I definitely have to put it at that level for me. So that's the end of our, uh, our crossover. Wow. All right. We saved the world once again. <laughs> Thanks for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, you coming on to talk to me. I, I also appreciate the fact that um, like when one of the guys from Fire and Water will ask me, you know, hey, what about this movie? All I ever do, this is what this is. The, the, we'll pull back the curtain a little bit in the dynamic here, whether it's Ryan or Shag or Chris. Any one of them will say, what about this movie? And all I have to do is say, well, maybe we'll do that one. Or I'm really busy right now. Maybe we'll get to it. Within a couple of weeks, I'll find out that they're doing it on your show. <laughs> like, they jump right to you because they, like, they don't want to wait. You know, and I'm like, okay, fine, fine, fine. So that's just the way this is. And I'm glad because, you know what, I don't need you guys. You and Chris talked about Smokey and the Bandit or whatever, you know, or you and Ryan talked about Arthur. That's fine. And you, you are relieving the pressure on me a little bit with my own network guys, which I appreciate. 
Yeah, well, I, I hate to think I'm just getting sloppy seconds, but no, uh, no, no, it's not that. I just I, I plan my shows out way in advance, and it's like these these guys are all like, "Hey, I want to do it right now." I'm like, well, "I just I, I haven't scheduled." And they're like, "Okay, they can't wait to talk about Arthur or Smokey the Band or whatever." So, but no, uh, no, no. I, I, I tell you, go listen to those. Those were good episodes. Oh, they're great. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on again, Rob. I appreciate it. I look forward to our next chance to do something together. And thank you, everybody who's listening. Thank you.